Well, everyone who uh, becomes a member here at Salem Presbyterian uh, Church does so voluntarily. There's uh, absolutely no pressure whatsoever to do so. But if you do become a member, you go through a membership class that meets at our house, and uh, it's called Discovering Salem. No one can ever remember if it's Discovering Salem, Meeting Salem, or Exploring Salem, but that one's called Discovering Salem. And we always talk about this passage, and we don't talk about many passages, but this one we do talk about. Matthew 18, and uh, it's all about what we call church discipline. And whenever we do that, I always talk about this story about a member of a church that I once knew in a long time ago, okay, long, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away. I knew this person, uh, and they wanted to get out of their marriage. And um, the elders uh, met with them, the elders are the leaders of the church, and met with this person who was a member of the church, and we encouraged them to wait. And um, they wanted it now. And so we just said, well, can you just give us a little while to think about it and pray about it, um, come back and talk to you? And this is what they said. I'll never forget this. They said, I thought y'all were supposed to give me wisdom and comfort and not tell me what to do. I thought y'all were supposed to be there to give me comfort and wisdom. Not, I didn't think you were there to tell me what to do. And I totally understood where they're coming from. That makes complete sense in 21st century America. Uh, I totally get that. But um, we believe here uh, that, that what Jesus taught is that being a member of, of a church is all about letting other people tell you what to do. I mean, that's what this whole passage is about. Uh, is that for the shepherd to come and find a wandering sheep, it would, it would entail that you tell that sheep, this is what you should do. And so um, there's never any threat of force. Okay, obviously, uh, we're not talking about the Inquisition here or stoning or anything like that, which is not to be underestimated because in the day that this story was written, they did do those kind of things. So there's no force whatsoever implied here. There's no threat. Um, But there is this reality of spiritual authority um, behind the what we call church discipline. So in verse 18, Jesus says... uh, And this is Jesus, by the way. Okay, this is not from Paul. Not that that would matter that much. But some people think Paul was bad and Jesus was great. This is coming from the teachings of Jesus. And he says in verse 18, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And the you there is the leadership, I think, of the church. And what he's saying there is you have the authority to declare someone forgiven and to withhold that declaration. And that's a very weighty thing, I realize. It's kind of a scary thing. We have to be very careful with church discipline. It has been used terribly to hurt people in the past. I acknowledge that. And even though what we've done here is not always perfect, but it, it is absolutely necessary to have um, a morally serious community of people that are trying to be transformed and changed into a disciple of Christ to do this kind of stuff. If you don't do this kind of stuff, and a husband is cheating on a wife, or worse... And the church is kind of like has no authority whatsoever and their hands are tied and they can't say anything or do anything, really. They can just give advice. If that's a situation, then, you know, first of all, the wife is unprotected and the children are bewildered and just the whole community, like, it's kind of like anything goes pretty much. And so you have to have uh, this kind of discipline um, in order to have, really, the church. To have the church, you have to have this. It was, in fact, one of the three marks of a church, according to the, uh, Reform- the Reformation. Uh, the early Reformers considered this one of the three marks of a true church, church discipline. And look at verse 20. The stakes are high here. Uh, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, people usually apply that to prayer meetings. I've done that in my past. Like, uh-oh, we better have 
another person here or else he's not going to you know, be amongst us. And that's obviously not what he's talking about here. This is clearly in the context of church discipline. And what he is saying is that I, I reign, my presence in the church is reigning over the world when people gather together and do these kind of things. I mean, that's how Jesus reigns as king, is through the discipline of the church. Um, that is the presence of Christ in the midst of the elders. So that's what it means when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. So that's church discipline. I want to look at that and the process. It's a three-step process. And then, very, very importantly, so don't leave, uh, don't, don't leave if you're offended in the first part. Wait for the second part. The second part is the motivation and the attitude that has got to be there behind church discipline. And that's where the parable comes in, which is absolutely critical to this whole passage. So first of all, very simply, church discipline is a three-step process. Three-step process. And it only applies if a person is stuck in a pattern of continual destructive behavior. This is not like someone just did one thing wrong. This is a repeated pattern, and they're not seeing it. Okay, they're not noticing it, and someone needs to talk to them. That's the scenario here. And so in that scenario, one first step is someone goes to them one-on-one. And the second step, two people come to them, or three. And the third step, you get the elders involved and the church involved. So those three steps, one-on-one, and then two or three, and then the whole church. And the first step is the most important by far, and 95% of the cases of church discipline happen in this informal step. There's nothing informal going on here, but it simply is in verse 15, if, if a brother or sister sins, and I think against you is not supposed to be there in the earlier manuscripts, so I would take that out. I would just cross that out. If your brother sins or your sister Go and tell them their fault just between you and him or her alone. And that you and, that you and him is very, very important there. Um, because that is a way of preserving um, confidentiality, preventing gossip, preventing the spread of slander and rumors. In Proverbs 25.9, God says, Argue your case with your neighbor himself and do not reveal another person's secrets. So if I know somebody named John, hypothetical John, and John yells at his family, his kids, his wife all the time, I don't go to Fred and say to Fred, I'm thinking about talking to John. Will you pray for me as I go to John? And that happens all the time, sadly. Like you go to someone and you say, I'm really worried about John. Um, can I process with you what's going on with John? And then, and then I'm going to go and talk to John. No, you don't do that. You go right to John. You go right to the one who continues this repeated pattern of destructive behavior, and you say to them, you know, I've, I've been noticing, um, I could be wrong, like this is just my perspective, I'm one person, but I have noticed this pattern in your life, and it seems to maybe be even getting worse, but you just keep yelling at your wife and kids, and so I just want to let you know that. And most of the time, right there, John um, listens. Maybe not immediately, but at some point along the way, John agrees with you that, that that is a problem, that his anger is a problem, his temper is a problem, and um, that is basically where it all ends, right there. So step one, it's over. One person comes to another person, it's accountability, that's what church discipline is mostly about, and that's, that should be happening amongst us at this church. If you really, really love someone, then, then you will do this for them when you see them um, hurting themselves, hurting other people around them. You will go and tell them with gentleness and with humility, 
um, things that you see about them that's going on that are, that are hurtful. And uh, it's a very beautiful thing to do this. The word um, that Jesus uses in verse 15 is gain. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And gain is a word that was used for uh, things that were valuable, like a stock, uh, the capital gains. You know, stock value is skyrocketing. That's a gain. Or we have gained ground uh, on the battlefield. So gain is also a word that, that meant winning in a battle, but both of them are very positive things. So when someone listens to you in, in, in the church um, and they say they agree with you, that what they're doing is a problem, then to, to God, that's like gold. Um, the angels in heaven rejoice. They, they throw a party when that happens. It is um, like victory over an evil empire when that happens. Because the human tendency, of course, is to not listen. That's why it's such a game. Because the human tendency is defensiveness. If you know anything about psychology, you know about the, um, the myriad of psychological defense mechanisms. I'll just list a few of them. But when someone is telling you something too painful for your ego to bear, these are some of the things that happen. Denial, regression, acting out, deflection, <clears throat> projection, compartmentalization, stonewalling, reaction formation. Um, if you want to look those up, you can look them up. But the point is that we have all of these ways. When someone is telling us something that is painful for us to hear, uh, we have an incredible number of kind of ways of deflecting, like karate moves to keep that attack away from us. And um, just think about, you know, you don't need to know psychology to just know the last time someone actually uh, criticized you. I mean, I'm talking about in a pretty serious way. This is not your family. Um, this is someone um, who's come to you um, very thoughtfully, and they, they tell you some fault. And it's a, it's a pattern. It's not just a little thing. You know, for me, uh, I, didn't, I didn't like say, oh my gosh, you're so right. I do that. I do do that. That's not how re- I reacted when this happened. I, um, my face became stiff. It always happens this way. But I got kind of stiff. My thoughts started rushing. I mean, I didn't really even know how to say anything because my thoughts are just going in all sorts of directions. And, and at first I just thought, is this person really saying these things? And then I thought, yes, they are saying these things. And then I thought, uh, but there's so many problems in what there's so many holes in their argument. I can puncture all these holes. And then I thought, I have so many counterexamples to what they're saying. There's so much exaggeration in what they're saying. And, you know, I, I had a list of excuses as long as my arm, just one after another of why what they're saying is not really either true or helpful or exaggerated. And I can just tell you that I, I hate to be criticized. I dread it to the point of doing a lot to avoid being criticized. Um, but if Jesus is right, and I generally think he's right, then in verse 18, he says, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And you can't get to verse 18 unless you go to verse 15. And so verse 15 says you've got to listen when someone criticizes you. And that, um, that little phrase, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, Jesus actually told that to Peter uh, in chapter 16. We heard that last week. And so right when Peter confessed, you are the king, you're the Messiah, uh, Jesus said to Peter, yes, and you will be my vice regents. You will reign with me. And part of what you'll be doing is loosing sins. So when you say that this sin is untied from someone, then it is really untied in heaven. It's kind of like loosing a, um, you know, a sea turtle that is caught in a 
fisherman's net or loosing a caged animal or a friendly killer whale at an amusement park. You know, loosing is setting someone free. Um, It's not about punishment. It's not about sending a child to his room because they're throwing a temper tantrum. It's about liberation. It's um, loosing someone from their sins. It's an amazing thing when this happens where you are really seeing yourself for the first time, at least a part of yourself, as very painful. And again, we go out of our way not to see that. But when someone actually puts your you know, face right into that area of your life and there's no more illusions, and there's no more hiding, um, whether, no matter what the sin is, this is, doesn't have to be like a technicolor sin. This could be gluttony, could be um, greed or anger, could be um, bitterness, but it also could be self-harm or porn or an- anorexia or alcohol, drugs, um, verbal abuse. No matter what the sin is, when you, when you are shown these things and you see them, um, to, re- to experience being loosed from them is so much better than to never have seen them at all. There's nothing like that experience of seeing it and then be- being declared not guilty. And uh, the person, you know, hugging you and, and showing you the love of Christ, the unconditional, absolute acceptance of God, as you are, just as you are, without you having to make any reparations or repayments or doing uh, penance in any way, just completely forgiven right there. Um, that's step one. Verse 15, if a brother sins, go and tell him his fault. And in most cases, people listen. But in some cases, they don't listen. And then you've got to go to step two. And in step two, um, you bring someone else along. So you kind of bring in reinforcements. Because in step one, they, they didn't listen. They just strengthened their defenses. Uh, step two says in verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now it's not just your word against theirs. It's like two of you are coming. Again, this is not a law case. This is not a law court. This is, this is not about being punitive in any way. This is only about restoration, liberation. But now you bring another person. And so this time I do talk to Fred, and I say, we need to go talk to John. And so we both go, and we say, you know, we're concerned about you. We've noticed this pattern of yelling I mentioned it last time. Seems like you're resisting what I'm saying. Now, again, you could be someone who yells at your kids and you can't stop. Um, but people keep telling you you've got to stop and you, you do try to stop. So this is not someone who's trying in any way to stop doing these things. This is someone who is um, brazen, okay, and they're, uh, they're hard-hearted and they're unrepentant. It's a very important distinction. So this is not just someone who's struggling with yelling at his or her children. This person is not interested in changing whatsoever. And that second person comes along and that adds weight uh, because it's hard to discount two people. You know, with, with Ben only, you can say, that's just Ben, you know how he is. Um, I'm not going to listen to that. But now you've got Fred and Ben and you're like, this must be serious because I do trust Fred. And these two have agreed on this thing. And um, that generally is going to take care of it. <clears throat> You know, now you're talking about maybe like 1% of the cases left are going to move into this next category. And this next category is actually called formal discipline. It's not that important that you know that word, but you go from kind of informal to now the church gets involved. 
Um, because sometimes a person will harden their heart even more after step two. I remember one guy who got so mad at me that he came up to me at a bar in front of my son, Cooper. And you might ask, why was Cooper at the bar? But he came up to me at a bar and he said, I can't believe you effing pulled that stunt on me. Um, I can't, and he just started cursing at me. And that's clearly someone where it needs to go to stage three. Okay, that's a pretty clear example of where um, stage two did not work at all. Um, and in cases like that, you've got to bring in more authority um, because there's, there's so much resistance. And again, remember, this is only someone who has chosen to become a member of the church. This is not just anyone who comes and visits the church. Verse 17 says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And I think initially it does not mean the whole church. It means the leaders of the church. Initially it just stays within the session, the elders of the church. We want to keep things as confidential as possible throughout the whole process. And so some of us would meet with John, some of the elders, and we would say, um, this is really serious. We keep telling you uh, about your angry words and your harsh treatment of your wife and your children, and I don't, there's no change at all. And you're refusing to change. You're getting angry at us. So this has got to stop. And if it doesn't stop, then you're not going to be able to take uh, the Lord's Supper. That's kind of the first thing we call it a censure or a way of disciplining someone and saying, um, we think that not taking this will be healthy for you because if you do take it, you're just being a hypocrite. You're going to keep doing these things and then acting like you're a believer when you're really not acting like a believer at all. And we're not going to let you do that. So again, if he listens to you right there or she, it's over. There, there is absolutely uh, no repercussion. There's no holding it over their head. There's rejoicing. There's hugs. There's total freedom from guilt. But again, now you move on to the very end of the process. It says if he refuses to listen even to the church. Uh, and it doesn't say like, you know, slap him on the face or punch him out or something like that. It just says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is where you would include the whole church. You'd make an announcement. No details given. Okay, no no details given. But an announcement that would say, we don't think that John, based on what he's doing, is acting like a Christian. And from this point on, we're not going to treat him like he is a believer. That's called excommunication. It sounds ominous. And it does not mean that you shun them. Okay, that's a practice of some churches that's, that's pretty bad, I think, that you would just shun that person and never talk to them again. Like the whole church would agree we're never going to talk to that person. I actually think that um, when Jesus says treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector, I mean, how did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Did he shun them? And was he not known for the exact opposite of that? Was he not known to be the friend of sinners and the one who invited them into his house and invited himself into their homes? So instead of shunning them, I think that the posture should be pursuit, greater pursuit, more love. So you tell them the truth, at least the way you see it, and then you don't shun them, but you move after them, um, maybe even more aggressively, with, with greater love. Um, and that's now my second point. That was all about the process, and this second point shorter. Um, the second point is about the attitude and the motivation with which this is done, which is critical. And again, some of you have experienced church discipline in terrible ways, and probably it was because of this problem with point two. The attitude was not right. The motivation was not right. Whoever did it was not thinking about the parable that Jesus told you right before it to very clearly let you know that that parable is about church discipline. 
the parable of the wandering sheep, which just shows you what is the whole motivation here is to bring the person back into the fold, into green pastures, uh, into the loving community. So verse 12, I love that Jesus says, what do you think? What do you think? Um, You tell me. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And, uh, you know, when, I, when Jesus says, what do you think? I, I think uh, probably not, actually. I'd probably not do that. I would probably stay with the 99. Uh, it doesn't seem like best practice for a shepherd that they would do that. Like, that doesn't seem the most productive thing. But um, that's, that's what he's saying here, is that, that, if it, that if it was God involved, God would go after that one sheep. And notice it's not lost. It's, it's led astray. This is a wayward disciple. Um, and, and God spends an unreasonable amount of energy, um, an, an amount of energy that is not necessarily tied to efficiency, to go after someone who is wandering. And I believe he would have his church do the same thing, that maybe even in your life, that it's those ones who are wandering, that it might not make any sense to put more time and energy into them, but it seems like that's what this parable is saying. Will he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? I mean, God apparently is not that concerned about third quarter earnings or productivity. If he were a CEO, he'd probably be fired. Um, But that's the way the kingdom works. It's very different from the way the world works. I mean, imagine that Jesus is your manager at a fast food restaurant. I don't think he would take that job, but let's say he did and... You're struggling, you're a single parent, you've got two kids, you're always late to work, um, you, you're, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're sleep deprived, you're disheveled, and a typical manager would probably have to, at some point, let you go, and somewhat understandably, because that's the way the world works. But let's say it's a Chick-fil-A. <laughs> no, forget that. Let's say that, that Jesus is your manager. Um, not only does he not let you go, uh, he would say, okay, we're going to work on a plan, a performance plan, and we're going to get you to a place where I want to give you a raise. And I'm going to hire you a nanny, and uh, I'm going to get a cleaning service for you and find rides for you, and I'm going to make you a model employee, and then I'm going to give you a raise. Uh, He rejoices over that one sheep more than 99 that never went astray, verse 13. God feels this unreasonably high level of excitement about wandering sheep, about people that are not doing well about those uh, that are on the outskirts, on the margins. I love verse 14. It is not the will of my Father that one of these little ones should perish. Peter heard that loud and clear. You know, Peter was there when he was teaching this. And later on, Peter writes to his churches and he says uh, in 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient because he wants everyone to turn from sin and not perish. It is not the will of my Father that anyone should perish. I want you to spend huge amounts of energy and go after every single lost and wandering sheep. That's the motivation here, is total restoration. And if that's the motivation, then you've got to do it uh, with gentleness, with humility. Paul makes this very clear in Galatians 6.1. If someone is caught in a sin... Restore that person gently. Restore them gently. And then Paul goes on to say, but 
But watch yourselves, because if you think you're something when you're really nothing, you're deceiving yourself. If you think you're all high and mighty because you're disciplining that wandering sheep, you're deceiving yourself. You're nothing. And so there's absolute parity here. There's level ground here between the shepherd and the sheep. So when you go into one of these crucial conversations, you're not just shooting from the hip. You're not just going in saying, so, you know, I was thinking, you know how you're always yelling at your kids? You don't, you don't do that. You pray for gentleness. You pray for humility. Um, you don't say things like, I just don't understand how any parent could ever do what you're doing right now. That's not gentleness. That's not humility. Um, if you go in with a critical spirit, if you go in as a self-righteous person, it will absolutely derail the process. It is not going to happen. Because humans just don't respond that way to criticism. And even children know this. When we try to discipline our children, and we're being like irritable, we're, we're being selfish because we want to go to bed, or we're hungry or something like that, they can tell that. And when we, when we do it with self-righteousness, they'll always say to us, uh, you're acting like you're so perfect, Dad. And it's true. I have this kind of uh, me above you know, them. And so they can't hear it when it's like that. They're not going to hear their critique. But when it is done... Uh, like the shepherd in this parable, then it can have its weight, its power. It can have its effect. Because ultimately, who is the one that really shepherds us behind the elders or the church? Who is the one really back there, uh, the invisible one, the supernatural one, who is really bringing to bear uh, the truth with love? It's the good shepherd. It's the good shepherd. He's the one who brings back the wandering sheep to his fold and feeds them in his best, greenest pastures. Um, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Um, he guides my path in righteousness. For his namesake, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I'll dwell in the house of the Lord. So uh, that's, that's the shepherd. That's, the, that's what church discipline is about. It's about Psalm 23. It's about um, the one who says in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And so this is really where he feeds us at his table. Um, this is where, in some ways, um, we are most uh, disciplined every single week. Because every single week, on the one hand, we're told, um, you know, you needed uh, God to actually come and become a human and die for you to pay for your sins. That's kind of an insult. But at the same time, we're told, and that God gladly did it uh, to restore you, to make you his own, to have you in his family. And so um, on the night uh, that our Lord was...